Well, hi folks, welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This is Ken and Charlie. At the moment, I'm in western Pennsylvania, surrounded by uh, fall colors. Meanwhile, Charlie is in Mauritius <laughs> in the southern hemisphere. I guess you're on your way to guide a Madagascar tour. And surrounded by uh, colorful fish. Yeah. <laughs> Austral spring down that way. That's why we have we time these Madagascar tours for this time of the year. So yeah, very different places in the world. And today we're going to talk about neither of the places where we are, but we're actually going to talk about Taiwan <laughs> a bit. I just guided a Taiwan trip, and Charlie has uh, guided and traveled there a bunch, so it, it should have a lot of things to talk about. Before we get into Taiwan, a um, couple things to mention. There's still spaces on these Yucatan and Baja California trips that I'm guiding uh, early next year. That's in February. So feel free to get in touch if that sounds interesting, can send details, whatever. Another thing, this is an idea from our friend uh, Joshua Coville, who's been on the podcast a couple times. We're going to do, at some point in the near future, an episode, what he calls AMA, Ask Me Anything. He said he really liked those episodes <laughs> we did earlier. We're going to do that again, but we're going to take questions from our listeners from the audience. So if you guys have anything to throw into the mix, questions to ask me or Charlie in a AMA episode, please fire them over via email or whatever, and we'll assemble those and we'll, we'll do some AMA episodes in the near future. Anything else? Any other uh, things to mention before we get into Taiwan? I'm still looking for some more people to sign up to my Kazakhstan trip next year. We did a whole episode on, on Kazakhstan with Keith Barnes recently. But uh, yeah, if you're still thinking about it, then uh, get in touch. It'd be great to have a few uh, listeners on the tour. And for anyone who's seen Borat, it is the greatest country on earth. So don't miss it. <laughs> I wonder, I, I bet a high proportion of tourism in Kazakhstan actually has something to do with Borat. I think the number of foreign visitors doubled after, after all that stuff. But they weren't happy with they it. Happy they said, it. you know, we, we're a sort of modern progressive country, they say, and, you know, not how uh, he represents us. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard it's amazing. Um, Central Asia is one of these big blanks on the map for me. Yeah. A lot of countries I haven't been. All right, well, Taiwan. Yeah, where do we start with Taiwan? For people who don't know, there's a lot of confusion between Thailand and Taiwan. It's a little bit like Madagascar and Mozambique. Actually yeah. different countries. Um, Thailand so, Charles, is... you're, you're living in in Taiwan. No, no, Thailand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was quite funny when uh, when we did the like the big week and stuff like that. There was there was myself and also Keith Barnes. And, and we're both kind of tall. And he's from South Africa. I lived in South Africa. He lives in Taiwan. I live in Thailand. So I, I would get people saying they just met me. And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I didn't just meet you. No, you're from South Africa. You live in 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 Thai, uh, Taiwan. I was like, nope, nope. I'm... So yeah, confusing. it was kind of funny. So, <laughs> so yeah, Thailand is, is mainland Southeast Asia. And uh, Taiwan is this large island that is sort of halfway between Japan and the Philippines, off the Chinese mainland. Yeah, it's politically complicated. You know, we, we have to be careful. Yeah. We, we don't have... I'm not going to get in that. I'm going to get my China visa canceled. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, <laughs> it's... Yep, China. 
um, Republic of China. It's interesting. Everybody, uh, the wonderful ambiguity that works so well was, uh, you know, we support the the one China policy, you know, which actually means different things to different people, but that's kind of safe, you know. Um, Naturally Adventurous also supports the one China policy. <laughs> Interpret that how you need to. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a fascinating aspect of Taiwan. It's just the whole political status of the place and, and the pressure from mainland China and just all the kind of like verbal gymnastics surrounding what is China. And <laughs> it's really, it, it is fascinating. I, um, it kind of hit home to me the first evening I was there. We were actually near the, the Taoyuan, the big international airport, just burning some coastal mudflats. And the whole coastline was essentially lined with like tank traps. Um, it looked like something from, you know, parts of part of Ukraine that's occupied by Russia at the moment. This, this like uh, hey. dragon's teeth just lined up along the beach. And it, it, yeah, in a weird way, it just hit home that, yep, this, this political thing I've been hearing about my whole life, you're like, yep, this is actually a place that has a real beach and they're, you know, worried about other people landing there and trying to take over. It's a real part so of daily I, life. I've guided in Taiwan a whole bunch of times, but um, ju- just on one occasion, we did um, an extension to some small islets that are kind of controlled by Taiwan, but that are just off the Chinese mainland, the, the, the Matsu um, Islands. And um, and you can actually see China from the islands. You know, you can, you're looking across. And they're incredibly close. Yeah, and there, and there, there's a lot of fortifications, a lot of these uh, little bunkers and things like that, and a big uh, military presence. So yeah, that was definitely uh, that was definitely interesting to see. Now, when you say you can see China, I thought there was only one China. So uh, sorry, mainland China. I meant yeah, mainland China. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. We support yeah, yeah. The Chinese um, mainland, I'll say. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you got to get your uh, verbal gymnastics in shape. Yeah. Uh, I remember being, I might have mentioned this in the podcast at some point, but being in the Shanghai airport and they have a sign that says Inter- "Departure, international departures and departures to Taiwan and Hong Kong. This was prior to Hong Kong really being assimilated. <laughs> and then there was domestic departures. It was just striking how there was a point made like it is a domestic departure but you just happen to access it via the international terminal but yeah so regardless of its political status taiwan is a fascinating little place i I think we both quite enjoy and appreciate it Uh, offline we've talked about i think we both mentioned it would be a place we'd like to live Um, yeah i I, I would happily live there i think you know all you know Family considerations aside, if you know tomorrow, if I just said I could go, I can live anywhere. I think I would go and live in Taiwan. I love the place. I just absolutely love it. So, what what are your favorite parts about Taiwan that would make you want to live there? Um, it's friendly. Yeah, the people the people are very friendly um, and they're very polite. They're kind of a little bit somewhere between mainland Chinese and Japanese. You know, they're sort of. A little bit calmer than uh, than sort of mainland Chinese tourists, which you sometimes um, meet there. A little bit more polite, but very friendly, very welcoming. And it's just, yeah, just so much good food and just nice natural areas. And um, 
you know, people are, are, are happy that you're there. You know, you, you get a lot of genuine friendliness directed at you. So it's um, it's just nice. It just makes you feel good. And of course, you know, I've got this fascination with the Chinese language as well. So that uh, that helps. Yeah, it, it's so friendly. That struck me as well, especially coming from the U.S. now. <laughs> and it's it's hard to describe. I mean, I don't know. Americans are often described as being friendly, and in some way, I guess they are. But I, w- I would say that Taiwanese people are quite gently courteous uh-huh. in a way, and they're not friendly in terms of like they they leave you your space, but then yes. when you engage yeah. with them, they're quite courteous and kind and and helping you as much as as they can. People are remarkably tolerant. So very, very little English is spoken in Taiwan. I mean, even, yeah, it's even great. like at big hotels in cities, the reception, the, you know, <laughs> the receptionists barely speak English sometimes. But despite that, people are just remarkably uh, tolerant of someone like me who speaks almost no Mandarin, you know, bumbling around the country and asking for things. <laughs> and again, I, I just always think what, you know, what if that, that, like the states is not like that. You, you know, like you just are going to have to speak English to get around here. And it's just amazing yeah. that I can just kind of wander around Taiwan and and people are kind and tolerant enough that. So, um, did you learn any before you went? No, you know the thing. Well, so the first <laughs> time that I went to Taiwan, I was all geared up to study some Mandarin because I generally like to uh-huh. speak a little bit of whatever language. And you basically told me, don't waste your time. Like, even if you learn <laughs> an extensive vocabulary of words, you're not going to pronounce them perfectly. And people are going to look at you like you just talked a bunch of gibberish. <laughs> and it's just not even worth your time. And and that, uh, I, think, I think that that, so everything I've seen in, in Taiwan subsequently suggests that you're right. That unless you are going to go absolutely whole hog and... and start to kind of speak per, as per, close to per, perfect Mandarin as you can. It's just not even worth, I don't know. It's weird. I was chatting with, I was working with this guy, uh, Chuck in Taiwan. And he was saying, yeah, this is like an education thing. Like we're, we're taught that we have to be perfect in everything. And so yeah. even in a foreigner, like the tiniest little imperfection in, in, in pronunciation is unacceptable unacceptable to the point of like, I don't even understand what you're saying, or I'm going to act like I don't understand what you're saying. That was his. <laughs> you know, Chinese people in general, they don't encourage you with, with your, with your, like you try and say something in Chinese and they just say, no, you can't speak Chinese. No, it's very bad. Your Chinese is very bad. And, and it's, and it's very frustrating as a language learner. You know, I've been studying Mandarin for years and years and years, and I still, fairly mediocre at speaking it you know it's an incredibly difficult language to learn you know in thailand you know everybody's very happy that you speak a little bit of thai but then in in china now nah, they're just like you know you, they just say no you you can't speak chinese you're you know you're you're you're, you're very bad there's very very few people that will encourage you with it there are a few but it might be like 10 percent or so i always feel like it's a bit of an uphill struggle and yet you continue. <laughs> I actually said something to someone. I might have said it to my wife. I said that if I was the last person in the world 
if I was the last man on earth, I would still probably study Mandarin, <laughs> study Chinese. <laughs> it fascinates me. It absolutely fascinates me. I, it's the it's the ultimate language challenge, and it's so beautiful. I find it's the most beautiful language, both written and spoken. So yeah, I, I'm just I've just got this lifelong fascination with it. You know, I I caught the bug a bit on this trip for Chinese language. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I actually uh, I actually really started to enjoy the sounds and the subtlety of, of uh-huh. the tones. And mm. I actually I went to the National Palace Museum, which is this famous museum in Taipei, which is basically full of this incredible assortment of things that were mostly taken out of mainland China Stolen by Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah. <laughs> and it's often said that it's the world's richest collection of, of Chinese art. And I don't know if that's true or not, but in any case, it's, you know, pretty remarkable collection, but some beautiful art in there. But the thing that really struck me was like calligraphy. There's like a whole floor of the museum that is just like ancient calligraphy and it'll be various sacred texts or maxims, but, but just written in this beautiful script and then there was, uh, it would talk about how, you know, this uh, calligraphist was famous and you can see his style. And, and as you looked at these things, you could actually see how much scope for expression there was in the way that you kind of painted Chinese, Chinese characters. Like it goes yeah. way beyond anything you can do with other languages. And I was thinking, you, you're never going to be in an art museum in Italy and on the wall is going to be like some words, right? Like, like some something from the Bible or something, right? It, it's just something that doesn't really happen in other languages. But Chinese itself, like the actual characters, are like works of art and can be written in such a yep. beautiful way. Yeah, it, it was it's kind of captivating. So, you know, I started looking at characters like more and more, and as you tune in, it's so cool. Like when you see that, you know, you make some connection between. Oh, that's that's door. Oh, that actually makes sense. And you figure some out. Well, I was very keen to have some stinky tofu on this trip. <laughs> I'd, I'd missed that before. <laughs> and so I eventually, with the help of, of Chuck, you know, I learned the characters for stinky tofu. So I was sort of spotting oh, nice. stinky tofu stalls all over the place. Tofu. You can normally smell them. <laughs> true. True. It was kind of redundant. You get some fairly simple characters and then the more complex characters, they kind of just stick them together. You know, it can be like four little bits or three little bits and they're all stuck together. And there's a lot of philosophy involved in it. The character for like, to like something, is woman and child because a woman likes a child. Or the the character for man is uh, is rice field and power. Because the the man is oh, the, wow. the power in the rice field, you know. That there's just you know when you when you get into it and you're looking how these things are combined and how they you know they all have have meanings. It's um it's absolutely fascinating. You know, I've always kind of laughed at the people who get like a Chinese character tattooed on their arm, but you know I'm halfway <laughs> there. Like I I actually think I would I'd far rather have a Chinese character tattooed on me than just some random word or what, you know, whatever word in, in English. There, there is this beauty and poetry and like layers of meaning to these characters for sure. I've actually asked people with Chinese characters. I said, you know what that means? And, and a few times they've, it, it didn't mean what they thought it meant, you know? So yeah, the idea of <laughs> tattooing something that you can't actually read yourself, I think. Right. Uh, right. 
So we've, we've, we've talked a little bit about the language. What else could we talk about? Maybe the, the food. Did you enjoy the food this time? Oh, my goodness. The food is, <laughs> is just... You know, we've talked about how there are countries where you can get good food if you go to the right place on the right day or, or yeah. whatever. Argentina is sort of like that. Well, you're lucky if you can get food at all. If, if you get food, it might it's probably <laughs> going to be good in Argentina. You just won't get food most of the time. But anyways... Yeah. Taiwan is just one of these places where there's always food everywhere and all of it is really good. Like you just don't find yeah. bad food. Even 7-Eleven. I mean, uh, on a, on a birding trip, we have many 7-Eleven breakfasts and they're great. They're, they're actually, and I'm somebody who would go into a 7-Eleven in the States and just barely find anything that I, edible, like amazing food culture. But the, the fascinating thing about a Seven Eleven or any kind of convenience store is you, you go in there expecting just to get a you know just get a sandwich and a, and a can of Coke whatever, and and I I just I just love going in these places because everybody just comes out extremely confused. There's so much stuff in there <laughs> that you don't know what it is, and then it's just labeled sometimes with English like weird, like it'll be. You know, cheese pickled in vinegar, or so. it will be—it will be just some some weird little combination <laughs> right. of things, like you know, bean curd with uh, pork floss, chili yeah. powder. <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> but I, I, yeah, but I remember going in, and I just, I just love watching people be confused. These clients went in, and they just had no idea what anything was, and it was just, it was just wonderful. It was absolutely a joy to be in there. <laughs> I'm sure you eventually uh, kind of ushered them around and showed them uh, things they might yeah. consider edible. That's what I always do. Okay, this is, you'll find some yogurt here, sandwiches here. I did a tour there with um, with Scott Watson and his uh, and his aunt. And um, I think it was in 7-Eleven, we, we discovered cocktails. They had, they had these little, little shot glasses of cocktails that they were selling in there. There was like a pink lady and a B-52 and... And we, we just got into buying these cocktails every day at 7-Eleven and, and having a little cocktail hour. Did you notice on the tour that the kind of Chinese food that they serve isn't – it's a little bit different from the Chinese food that you would get in the States, right? American Chinese food is like a whole different thing. It's it's not even Chinese food. You know, it's like Tex-Mex. So um, I had a client – that was from San Francisco, and he said no, no. And he was he was just telling me how authentic the Chinese food was in uh, in San Francisco. I was like, oh, fine, yeah, it's great. Because I, I think I was trying to warn him. I said, you know, it's a little bit different here. You know, it might not be quite what you're used to at home. And he goes, no, 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 we get authentic Chinese food. And he was kind of horrified of what he got. One of the things, you know, if you're used to having like a little, you know, sweet and sour pork or something like that, the pork there's usually very little meat on it and a lot of fat on it. So this is one thing that often people don't like is this very, very fatty pork. But um, I think you've mentioned before that the, the, that's actually the delicacy. That's the best bit in a lot of cultures is this kind of fatty bit. And the other thing was um, you don't get little little chunks of, of chicken. You'll get kind of chicken on the bone. And often instead of like just pulling it apart, so you, you know, you've got a little drumstick or a, a wing or whatever, they just take a big meat cleaver and they just chop right through the bone. So it's all kind of, all kind of splinters. So the, these two things caused all sorts of problems on our tour because uh, people were always complaining. All, all they wanted was these little tender pieces of, of chicken or pork and they never got them. Yep. 
Yeah, so on I on this trip, I really this is kind of a post-pandemic thing in a way. I just went out of my way to eat as much like as many different things as I could out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Just try everything. <laughs> and I mean, I I had okay. Um, if you're squeamish about food and or vegetarian, watch out. But yeah, I mean, I ate like tripe and blood duck blood sausage. And uh, stinky tofu multiple times, century egg, which is this like preserved egg that I, it might even be buried in the ground to <clears throat> um, all different kinds of tofu, quite a few strange meats. Yeah, I, I ate all kinds of, uh, of stuff. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but um, Taiwan is probably one of the best places in the world for vegetarians. They they really go to town on vegetarian food, and um, any any road in Taiwan you go along, and there'll be there'll be several vegetarian restaurants. It's it's really big. It's a lot more popular there than in in mainland China. But one one of the weird things is they denote a vegetarian restaurant by having a swastika, which is a sort of Buddhist symbol. It's a very good symbol. It's actually the mirror image of the one the Nazis used. But yeah, it's kind of weird going down looking for swastikas. To, uh, <laughs> bit freaky. But yeah, they, they, it's wonderful. And you can, anywhere you go, you just say, oh, you know, vegetarian. Um, and and they'll just make you just wonderful food. A lot, a lot of kind of fake meats, things that look really, you know, that you would almost not eat because it's, it's so realistic in you know looking like f- uh, fish or, or meat or whatever yeah the tofu just the basic tofu is just so amazing and, and so varied mm. it's definitely one of these yeah. places where i've just thought i could easily be a vegetarian here and, and just hardly yeah. hardly miss all this other strange stuff I can, I can definitely drop the the pork floss and the tripe <laughs> amazing mushrooms as well did you oof, the shimabu and these, like these oyster kind of mushrooms like and oyster yeah. mushrooms yeah oh amazing in stir fries yeah it's fantastic so it's hard to even describe the food to americans who think they know chinese food because they've had american chinese <laughs> it, it really it's like a whole different cuisine i mean i guess there's certain commonalities soy sauce is used pretty frequently you know, one thing that's used a lot is sesame oil, and I don't, I don't uh-huh. get that a lot in American Chinese. Maybe if you're in a in a nice restaurant or something, but man, sesame oil is in everything, and that is just like a magic ingredient. Um, a lot of star anise. There's star anise in all kinds of different uh-huh. things. There's, I don't know. Yeah. There's this distinctive seasoning mix in Taiwan, and I haven't even quite figured out what it is, but I know star anise. Well, is Chinese five spice. Yeah, it's five spices. It's I think I think it has maybe star anise in it, but yeah, they, they actually sell this combination of spices as, as Chinese five spice, and it's quite a distinctive combination of uh, flavors. Man, I just find that delicious. Like I do not get tired of it. <laughs> I want it on everything. Like if I I get some random thing in Seven Eleven and then it tastes like that Chinese five spice, I'm like awesome. It's it's delicious. Yeah. Which I guess this um, is thousands of years of of cooking culture technology. You know. Yep, they've settled on something yeah. that is just quite tasty. So I've done a few self-drive ones where it's just been me and a, it's a, just a, a few clients, you know, driving around. And often we would find ourselves in reserves and stuff in the middle of the day without a restaurant or anything there. 
But another good thing that they have are these uh, instant noodles. And it's not, not just like, like a cup noodle. I mean, there's like a, you go into a store and there's like just aisles of different types of noodles. And they're absolutely amazing. Some of these instant noodles with different little sachets of things. Um, but another thing about Taiwan is that everywhere you go, there's hot water available. You know, there'd be a little, little camping stall or picnic site or gas station or wherever. There's always hot water available for your, for your, um, instant noodles. Yep. I love that about Taiwan. It, it's, it's, <laughs> there's something just very civilized about it. It's just, I don't know. It's hard to describe. I, I just really enjoy that. Hot water everywhere. I, I love how it's viewed as this like necessity in and like it a is. public it's like good. a human right. Ba- yeah, basic exactly. Human right. Exactly. <laughs> like you might be poor, but you got a right to some boiling hot water out of a machine next to the police station. It's, it's just like it's exactly just- police stations. If you can't find hot water, go to the police station. It's always there. Yeah, that's funny. So Taiwan, in terms of, it's quite a developed country. It has huge cities the whole western side of the country is pretty heavily populated but then you have you know two-thirds of the country is basically like a narrow east coast and then this this big mountain range with peaks going up to like over ten thousand feet so it's quite rugged it's quite beautiful and there although parts of it are super developed and built up it's quite variable you know you can out in the country things can be quite rustic and it's it's a bit like Thailand in that respect. And there's something I really mm. like about these places where, yeah, it's developed, but it's not just uniformly. There's there's a, a funny untidiness to Taiwan that I actually really like. <laughs> you walk down little alleys and, and they, they're just very lived in and they're not just squalid, but they're also not like immaculately clean. You can get like, you, often if you end up down some little little alleyway or country lane there'll be a bunch of rusty cars that have been all kind of piled up by the side or you know there'll be some barking dogs or just like yeah it's pretty clean but um they they do in some places have problems with with trash people kind of go and dump trash and stuff so yeah it can be a little bit uh a little bit funky I would say it's fundamentally very clean, but it's often untidy. There's often just kind of stuff yeah. scattered around in a, yeah. in a funny way. One of my favorite things about Taiwan, any, any kind of urban or semi-urban area, there are tons of potted plants. People just seem to so <laughs> value anything, any living thing. There'll just be yeah. these crazy gardens of potted plants just right in the city, right on the city street, just out in front of somebody's business. It, almost every single house or business has these. And one of the people I was guiding, they, they said, yeah, you know, those wouldn't last one night where I live in California. And, and that really got me thinking that, yeah, you're right. There are some pretty safe parts of the States, but in, in a lot of urban areas, yeah, I mean, people might be urinating in them or who knows what, but <laughs> so there's something about Taiwan where stuff doesn't get stolen and then people really value their surroundings they value plants and and it, again it gives the quite a cool feeling even urban areas so um we i did this extension where, um once and i guess the, it was a local guy that had, um it, he was renting the car to us and he came and found we we were out birding walking some trails or whatever and we got back to the car 
and there was a flask of coffee and he'd driven around looking for us and it it sort of you know broken into his own car and then uh, and left a and left a big thermos of coffee and and some cups for everybody to have a little bit of mid mid morning coffee and i was telling a friend in south africa i said yeah yeah in uh, in taiwan they sort of break into the car when well, I break in, you know, they open the car and they and they leave things in there. R- rather than taking things, they they put things in there. <laughs> but it was like, oh, <laughs> whoa, paradigm shifting. Yeah, yeah, it is unbelievably safe in Taiwan. Everywhere, it doesn't yeah. matter where you are. When so I I arrived a little bit early, and I spent a couple days in Taipei before the tour started, and I stayed at a very cheap hotel in a relatively bad part of Taipei <laughs> with, near the train station just because that was it was cheap and convenient yeah. and I arrived at like 6 in the morning and I went up to this hotel this hotel it was basically the third floor of an apartment building it was it's such a weird place so most of this is just apartments but then like one floor has been turned into a hotel but the reception it was just wide open there, you know, there's like computers sitting there and fridges and piles of all kinds of stuff. It, it, it's all just lying there. There's nobody around. Uh, there's no receptionist. There's no security guard. It, it, it just hit me. Man, this is just so safe here. People, it's off people's radar to worry about security. And <laughs> I, it, I wonder how do they appreciate how uncommon that is globally? I don't well, think they do. I, I think they think just so. kind of take it for granted. It's just remarkably safe. I, I remember, so I spent two, maybe two months with my family in Taiwan. You know, this is when Felix was about, I think he was about a year and a half old, but we spent two months in Taiwan. I was trying to persuade them that, you know, they they really wanted to live in Taiwan, but it, it didn't quite work out for them. But um she would just wander the streets at, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night. You know, it's quite a sort of nocturnal culture as well. You know, you go out at 10 p.m. and the streets are just alive with all these little stalls and things like that. And she would just wander the streets alone, you know, um, when I, I'd gone off, you know, doing a tour. And she was just wandering around, pushing around Felix at 10, 11 o'clock at night. And she, she said she felt completely safe. Yeah, not surprised. Yeah, it's up there. If I was making a short list of like the safest countries I've ever visited, I think it would, <laughs> it would certainly be in there. Yeah, yeah. it's as safe as, as Japan or Singapore or, or you know the safest places at Thailand. Yeah, it's it's really one of the safest places. Yeah, I think that's one of the big things that contributes to just my enjoying the feeling of being in the place. Um, there's just not a lot of hassles. You know, we mentioned that people are quite yeah. gentle friendly um you're not worried about security i mean it, it was crazy the, this guy that i was working with he would just leave the doors of the car open literally open like the sliding doors of the van and there's yeah. fifteen thousand dollars of camera gear lying there he was just completely <laughs> unconcerned you know we, we'd yeah. walk sometimes we'd walk 500 meters away and be birding and chasing something and he he just didn't even enter his mind to go shut the door and that and that's just remarkably <laughs> safe but it, it's quite it's a nice feeling to be in a place where you're that safe it just makes you feel like you don't need to worry about things it's hard you know people yeah. who live in an atmosphere 
that's unsafe, I don't think you realize how heavily it weighs on you until you're in a place that's safe or as safe as Taiwan. And that, when that pressure is relieved, you're suddenly like, oh, wow, like, this is really nice. Just, you know, good food everywhere. So safe, um, green, comfortable. Taiwan has really good infrastructure. Uh, you know, the trains are just immaculate and run on time and there's really good highways so it has plenty of infrastructure, but at the same time, it's not just one of these places where everything costs a ridiculous amount. Like things are quite affordable. I know it's remarkably inexpensive, eh? Especially food. You especially, know, apparently the cost of real food, estate yeah. in the big cities is comparable with New York. So real estate is right. super expensive, but a lot of yeah. other things are really cheap. Like transportation is cheap. Food is incredibly cheap. Hotels are pretty cheap. Nah, it's very, uh, it's very cool. Um, so, did you get up to uh, Shan? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean that's kind of like the it, the Keystone birding it's location. Quite, it's quite a interesting location. You know, the whole setup. It's it, it, what is it? It's called like a, a youth center or something like that. It's got some. They they put a huge amount of money into some of these conservation areas, into the facilities, just even the bathrooms and you know, visitor centers and things like that. You know, it's really, um, it's really amazing how much money they spend on these things. Yeah. There's in general, there's a, just a lot of, uh, publicly accessible infrastructure in Taiwan, you know, a lot of parks and yeah, just this thing of like making hot water available everywhere. You know, there's this certain <laughs> ethos to that. Like there's a lot of, yeah. seems to be a lot of attempts to make the whole environment good for everybody. Not just like, this is a nice thing for people who have a lot of money and can afford to be here or whatever. But the Taiwanese, they seem to enjoy being outside. They seem to enjoy nature and, um, you know, going hiking and walking and cycling and, you know. Oh, so, well, I always say the national sport of uh, Taiwan is driving up a mountain road, stopping <laughs> somewhere randomly, putting up your little portable table and chairs taking out your yeah. portable water boiler, if you happen to be remote <laughs> enough that there's not already a water boiling machine nearby, making your make, <laughs> yep, yep, making tea and noodles and eating them in a beautiful surrounding. It, it is just yeah. the, the thing you do. Nothing you see better. people everywhere doing this. Up in the, Anytime yeah. you're up any kind of mountain road. Get like a hundred cars all, all lined up. Yep. <laughs> Every, everybody doing the same thing. Yep. Yeah. It's so funny. Yep. National sport, but it's a good, uh, it's a good national sport. I mean, there, there does seem to be this just deep appreciation of, of the outdoors. I don't know. Maybe that's because people live in such, you know, tightly confined urban areas that they're, you know, just yeah. so happy to get out whenever they can. Did you go to, uh, Wuxi or, or Qingjing? Yes. Like the, a couple nights there. Yeah, so this is a, a bit of a weird place. You know, there's that place in Malaysia, Bukit Tinggi, where you've got like a sort of a Italian oh, area French and a French castle, area, whatever. and yeah, it's like yeah. a little castle. Yeah, it's a little bit like that, the Qingjing, because you know, one. I think they've got a. They've also got like an English castle there, and they've got a. They've got a farm where you can go and go and pet sheep and stuff like that. This is part of the place. One of the places that we stay. But yeah, it, that's also kind of funny. You, you know, talking about tourism and what people do, but uh, you know, as well as driving up a mountain road and, and making noodles, 
another thing they like to do is just go go to somewhere that's like a a different style you know a little english castle or a little sheep farm yeah i noticed one thing up there which is like faux netherlands and there's windmills and tulips windmills and, yeah. yeah the whole thing is just like this bizarre kind of european theme park it's so it's such an asian thing i i, I love it I was, I was actually up there on a national holiday so man those sheep were getting oh. <laughs> uh, so are, are they still um are they still feeding the like pheasants and stuff? They're making their little uh, what do they call them? little setups, little feeding setups, feeding stations. You know, it seems the tide has turned culturally. Ooh. There's been a lot of government effort to tell people that you know feeding birds is bad, and and so people are feeding them less and less, and it's just viewed as being kind of unacceptable to do that. Which seems like such a mistake to me. I, I just don't, I don't see the harm in feeding birds. And I mean, so I was, I was telling people in Taiwan, every single nature center, state park, national park, national wildlife refuge in the states, people feed birds. Yeah. So this assumption that feeding birds is just always horrible and unethical, I just don't even know where that comes from. It's very odd. The Japanese have have the same idea, but it, it's kind of weird because you know some some things they just kind of ignore it and they say, okay, you know, in general we don't like it, but we're just going to feed these birds over here. You know, we'll feed these cranes and we'll feed these owls and you know we'll feed these eagles, <laughs> but the other stuff is wrong, you know. But um, in in Taiwan, because the Taiwanese, you know, so safe and you know on the whole kind of law abiding and it's, there's rules and people follow the rules, but they would put up all these big signs saying you know no no feeding and then you know no, no feeding the birds and then right next to the sign they would be sprinkling grain on the ground for these uh, for these beautiful pheasants to come out for all these you know adoring uh, photographers that, that want to take their pictures yep I, I once there saw there was a sign that had a list of like eight prohibitions and there was somebody <laughs> with their little table set up directly in front of the sign and they were violating at least five out of the eight things <laughs> It was. I just love that. I should have taken a picture. Yeah. But yeah, for for whatever reason, they seem to be more serious about not feeding birds, which I just view as quite unfortunate. And it just doesn't, from an ecotourism perspective, these birds yeah. are such a major draw. And the harm of feeding, let's say, twenty, you know, pheasants and partridges in the whole of Taiwan just seems disproportionately tiny compared to the benefit that the country gets yeah. um, from ecotourism from with these as some of the big marquee species. I, I don't know. It just, it just strikes me as just not a very well thought through policy. In Thailand, it, it kind of comes and goes. You get these waves of, you know, enforcement of rules and then everybody just kind of forgets about it again and, and starts doing it and it kind of creeps back in. You know, because it's individuals that are often setting up the the particular spots. You know, the the photographers will all you know know that you know you put the bit of food here and you know turn up at four p.m. and the Mikado pheasants will be strutting around on the roadside. You know, but um, yeah, I hope uh, that kind of makes it a little bit more difficult if if things are not being fed, especially when you're doing some kind of photo tour. Yeah, I mean, so, some of the 
most spectacular endemics, it just is going to make them almost impossible to find. Mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah, I just don't see that there's any real strong conservation rationale to doing that. It's one thing, you know, there are countries like in Indonesia, there's so much bird trapping and hunting. Yeah, I can see how it's, it's, you know, ethically at least worth thinking about whether or not you should be feeding birds. But in Taiwan, nobody's hunting these things. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, there, there was still, I guess, enough feeding that these, the pheasants were still attending these uh, historic sites. Right. And yeah. spectacular, spectacular. So there's two endemic pheasants, both of which are just amazing. And then there's this very handsome partridge, Taiwan partridge. I think it's probably the, the best looking of all the partridges in Asia, yeah. of which there's, what, 15 or so. There's a good number. I think it must be up around 30 species, 30 endemics, you know, which for a country, you know, it puts it up there amongst the top, you know, countries with, with endemics. But they're not just, you know, little brown jobs. You know, a lot of them are really spectacular. I mean, these pheasants are incredible. And then you get this Taiwan um, blue magpie as well, which is just gorgeous. And then a bunch of cool flycatchers and this beautiful thrush. And, yeah, it's... um. It's really very, uh, very cool place. What I often tell people about the endemic birds is that the Taiwanese representative of each group is almost invariably the best looking or the coolest one (laughs) over and over again. Like it has the coolest sibia and the coolest tit and just the coolest yuhina. And and I don't know. it has a relatively small set of endemic birds, but they're just so high quality. They're so they're such good-looking yeah. birds, uh, and it's also striking that there's 30 plus endemic birds in Taiwan compared with Japan. Japan, which is what 20 Ten. times yeah. the size, <laughs> there's yeah. only a handful of endemics in Japan. Yeah, it's strange. It's um, it's it's done well, and and it's had. I think on average it's had one endemic per year added. You know, they've got these very distinctive subspecies and every year they decide that one of these distinctive subspecies is going to be, you know, elevated to species status. And and it's it's, it's been like clockwork. Every single year they've added another one. It won't go on forever, but um, I think there's still a few splits still to come. Oh, definitely, definitely. One of the, the cool things, we don't really have time to do justice to the whole birding biogeography side of Taiwan, but the the mountains are huge and there's actually this strong affinity between the Taiwanese mountains and the the Himalayas all the way over in like central China, which is so cool. And so there's all these like isolated outposts of these species, which presumably were sort of isolated by in some, you know, period of glaciation or something and isolated on these mountaintops in Taiwan. You know, the weirdest one of those is probably this population of alpine eccenters, which is this real, yeah. like, high-altitude species found in places like the Alps and, and the Himalayas. It's, yeah, it's a biogeographically fascinating place. It's an interesting, you know, obviously, you know, the higher up you go, the fewer species that are up there, but they, they tend to they tend to be really tame up at the top. You know, they kind of hop around your feet sometimes, these accenters and some of these rose finches and laughing thrushes you know they're just incredibly tame they've got no fear yeah i think we've talked about that before with high mountain birds being tame and i don't think we've 
mm. ever encountered any good explanation for that. It's a weird, it's a global <laughs> phenomenon. So one thing I want to briefly mention before we uh, close out this episode is I've had quite a few people tell me that they hesitate to visit Taiwan because they think that mainland China is going to attack at any moment. And I just think that is so overwhelmingly unlikely that that is that invasion is going to happen while you're visiting Taiwan that I really wouldn't consider that when <laughs> basically just just go to Taiwan like it's not going to happen while you're there you you know you're going to be there for no. 10 days 2 weeks when you start to think of the probability it would it would just take you know inordinately bad luck for that to happen i just don't think that that should be uh, a factor and i also think if something like that did happen, the foreigners are going to be the first people to get evacuated. I don't think you're going to yeah, get stuck there. Yeah. So A, it's incredibly and, unlikely. And it will be a good story. <laughs> oh, epic story. Right, right. <laughs> I, I just I don't... There. If anything, to be honest, I would go the other way and I would say, go to Taiwan now. Go um, go now. Yeah, right. Before right. it changes. Yeah. Like Hong Kong used to be quite a distinct enclave and it's kind of being incorporated in China and Taiwan is incredibly distinctive and fascinating now, and we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but it's probably not going to stay like that forever. So see it how it is now. It, it, it's really amazing. Um, yeah, I would definitely... It's it's just remarkably kind of not talked about a lot, not real well known. I saw incredibly few foreigners there. When I compare, yeah. like I was in, you know, Phnom Penh a few months ago and there were thousands of foreigners there wandering <laughs> the streets at night. I barely saw, I mean, I saw a few dozen foreigners, uh, my whole time in Taiwan on this visit. Even, uh, mainlanders don't really visit anymore. Eh? That, 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 used yeah, to that, be, co that comes and goes. Eh? Yeah. I guess it, it comes and goes. So, temperature. Yeah. The situation. Yeah. Cause, and, and if they open it, if they say, okay, right, we're, we're opening the, the gates again, they you'll get hundreds of thousands in you know they absolutely flood the place but they i think they you know like to it's a bit of a bargaining chip really um to to get this kind of tourism coming in so uh it's a kind of a double-edged sword as well because you know often they can be a little tricky some of these um large chinese groups i mean we, we stayed in these hotels with with tons of chinese in there and it was quite <laughs> it was quite intense so I I mentioned before, you know, the, the real high quality, the endemics and some really attractive species, um, you know, and they're not just a bunch of little brown jobs. There is one little brown job, but it makes up for it um, by its absolutely amazing call. It's called the Taiwan bush warbler. And it's just got one of my favorite bird calls in the world. It just sounds like Morse code. So, yeah, we're going to play out with, uh, with Taiwan bush warbler. Many thanks for listening today. Uh, special thanks to our patrons. Good to catch up again, Ken. Um, hope we uh, have another chat again soon. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you all next time on Naturally Adventurous.